0: At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits.
1: Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what?
0: But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people, all working toward the ultimate goal. Best in show.
2: What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit.
1: You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.
2: If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you
1: forced me to use force! Why do you sell me by a rabbit instead? I imagine right now, you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Welcome to the Best in Show podcast, the only podcast dedicated to the rabbit and KV industry. This is episode 41, part two interview with Kevin Whaley and a tour through the ARBA's new headquarters. My name is Alan Messick. I am a rabbit geek and rabbit judge from California, and I am joined with my stunning co-host, who also happens to be a rabbit geek, rabbit judge, and ARBA Standards Committee Chair, Bryony Smith from Kansas. How's it going, Bryony?
0: As always, you are too kind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, we're a good match.
0: That we are. So I am actually wrapping up this week. Um, this Tomorrow is the deadline for clubs to send me their vote in varieties, Um, the results of those ballots with that new process that the standards committee instated with the approval of the board in Louisville, Kentucky. So we are looking forward to filling out some groups and adding some varieties that can provide hopefully some genetic support and quality improvement to some of those that are already existing.
1: You are a busy, busy bee. Do you remember those times where conventions started, like, maybe a few days before convention? Not 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 months out, like you have now?
0: Not, like, as soon as I got home from the previous convention. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> precisely. Oh my God.
0: You know, I always think it's funny. You see brand new convention, people at convention their first time, and they're like, I'm a nobody. Nobody knows me, you know. And I think I always think of the movie Billy Madison, because I am that age where the kid says, I can't wait to be a grown up. And Billy grabs him by the cheeks and yells, cherish it, cherish it. (laughs) I mean, I love everything I do. I would not trade it. I do it on purpose. But there are times I would just love to be able to walk to the showroom and walk out of the room and go get lunch and not have to, you know, spend two hours trying to get out until i'm really not hungry anymore and then it's like well it's three o'clock should i just skip lunch and go to dinner probably so
1: yeah you you actually just forget about it It, eventually the hunger dies and you're just overwhelmed Yeah,
0: exactly you get busy yeah
1: (laughs) i I can't even remember the last time i i think i ate lunch at a in a convention (laughs) even from like the 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 not so good fast food stands there it's just just doesn't happen you don't you don't eat until dinner
0: no. And if you do, like on those rare days, like you grab your friends, you link arms and you march out the door.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you go, hmm, it's 10 miles out of town, but I don't think there'll be anyone there. We can have a quiet dinner.
0: Right, right. Let's run away where nobody knows us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. No, but th- we're not, we're not knocking anywhere friends. We love seeing everyone,
0: of course, but. <laughs> oh, we do. We do. But, but again, I mean, I think that's the funny part, even like some of my Dutch friends, we try to get lunch together and I'll get free. And I'm like, are you guys free? Yeah, just a minute. We need to look at a rabbit from so-and-so or I'm going to help so-and-so with this. And I'm like, here we go. It's going to be another half an hour. And then somebody grabs me. And yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Famous last word. I'll be right there. I just have to look at this one rabbit.
0: (laughs) I'll be right there. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you're crazy. I am getting ready for a trip to Malaysia next week to uh, go back for the first time since pre-pandemic i'm really excited to see our friends uh in malaysia and southeast asia and really cool about cool part about this trip is of course i'll be judging but giving a a bunch of registrar exams and a couple of judge exams as well so uh, hats off to our breeders in southeast asia who uh, did not seem uh, deterred by the pandemic and are still raring to go with the rabbit and kb and arba industry there in their part of the world
0: well I am excited for all of you and a little bit jealous. Promise you will eat some chendol for me. That's my favorite. Um, anything I can't but wait durian. to durian. See... <laughs> I can't wait to see pictures. And yes, I, I don't think, you know, I don't know. You might get harassed by durian and some memes, but.
1: Uh, they always, they, that's how they prep our trips, by, by yeah. taunting us with durian. <laughs> ah,
0: yeah. So what does it taste like to you? How would you describe the taste of durian to someone it's... who's never had it?
1: It's not appropriate for a podcast, I will tell you that, because I did say what it exactly tastes like one time in front of everyone when I was there for the first time, and they looked at me like, oh, no. You know, uh, it's it's like sewer. Let's go there. It's, it's, it's terrible. The smell is, is far worse than the taste, but once it's in your mouth, and then you have to, I'm sorry, you burp it up for eight hours afterwards. It's terrible, and they love it. What about you?
0: I would describe it as, first of all, it's, If you've never seen it, it's a spiky ball of fruit. And I am convinced that the only reason anyone ever tried this was because some teenage boys dared each other. I don't know what other (laughs) person would say, hey, look at this spiky hard thing. It stinks. Let's eat it. Yeah, let's Um, open it up to a very
1: (laughs) gooey, gooey, soft, like almost yogurt texture interior, which looks nothing like the outside and certainly smells far worse than the outside, which does stink as well.
0: The outside smells like rotten cantaloupe and it Mm kind of gives me a headache if I sit in a durian stand too long. The inside, so there's these pods inside and the texture of them totally creeps me out. It's far too like skin-like. So I couldn't eat that. I tried the center, which you're right, has this yogurt or pudding texture, but imagine making vanilla pudding and instead of using milk, replacing it with kerosene.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's a great great way to describe it. And I can smell that stuff from... 30 feet away. And the, the best sign I ever saw in Southeast Asia was in Singapore at the Changi airport. It's a picture of a durian and a big slash through it, meaning <laughs> don't bring it in here because it's going to stink up our airport. I totally agree. It
0: is it is banned or illegal in those countries actually to take it on public transit because it stinks so much. That's why there are durian stands. So people that don't in a car who maybe travel by motorbike or public transit, that's where they get to enjoy durian is at an outdoor stand. Um you and, can only take durian home if you can get it there yourself.
1: And and they can find it blindfolded by their nose.
0: They Well they everybody have. can.
1: <laughs> yeah. And they but they they yearn for it. They there's durian season, which always blew my mind because it seems like every time I go there and I've been there at every time of the year, it's always
0: available, unfortunately.
1: I can't even imagine what it's like in season. <laughs>
0: Well, I actually, I have met one person there who didn't like it. She said, my family would bring it home and I would go in my room and cry. <laughs> but, so there's always somebody, you know what? I am the Kansan who does not like barbecue. That's
1: that's that's weird. I'll give you that. But it's not as weird as <laughs> as someone from Southeast Asia not liking Duran. And that woman needs to be my bestie because I totally agree with her. <laughs> She's a rarity. So, well, I want to talk to you about... Uh, the last podcast, episode 40 with Kevin Whaley, it was one of my favorites I have to say and I'm super excited about the second half of your interview with Kevin today. He is uh, far too modest. I mean, I, I I listened to it several times in fact. I just couldn't get enough of it and his take on the car as he's brought up several times uh, is, is really funny to me because I was sort of around during the backstory and he makes it sound like you Know, yeah, it made it there in four days, but he doesn't. He leaves out the part about the buying it, the part, the getting it from Arizona to KW, and then refurbishing it because he talks about, oh, it's kind of, kind of a rusty exterior, wasn't like really ready to go. No, he redid the car in like four days, shipped it to Pennsylvania, and it arrived just in time for the opening that, that you were there for. I mean, and that is just one component. I, I believe that a lot of what happened there was so magical, and thanks in large part to his brilliance, and he's far too modest. I I thoroughly enjoyed the interview, and I cannot wait again for what's coming in this episode.
0: I thoroughly enjoyed doing the interview, and it was one of the easiest I have done. Um, It was kind of knocking cobwebs off after a little break, but It was easy. We didn't even have to edit it. It just flowed. He was a great interview subject. And I'm so glad that he could share all of his work and passion for the hobby in this format for everybody to listen to.
1: Yes. And everyone stay tuned for this episode. And uh, by the way, Bryony, have you read the current issue of Domestic Rabbits magazine? I have. And how did you read it?
0: Well, I first read it on my app because we actually get access to it there before it even hits the mailbox.
1: Wait, that's a thing?
0: It is.
1: Well, tell tell everyone about that because uh, I think some of us are still in the dark ages of paper.
0: Well, all you have to do is go to your app store on your phone and or you Google Play. I'm an iPhone user. I think it's Google Play. Uh, you can one correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah it's one of those. <laughs> but wherever you get your apps... And the ARBA has an app. You can download that. And as a member, you can log in and you can access all of your DRs, past DR issues. Even if you've just joined, you can access a member handbook, the guidebook, um, and all of these things. It's on your phone. It's at your fingertips. You can even purchase an electronic copy of the standard that's housed in this app. And I do use that at the show because I look at mine almost daily. Mm-hmm. Um but it's a great thing to see. And, you know, you can get a scoop on all the news and information because it does come to your app at least a week before hitting the mailbox, if not two. Um, so that's why I always read mine first. And then I get it, you know, get the hard copy and look at the pictures, you know, in real size. But-
1: you know, listening to Kevin and other uh, guests on our podcast, they've, they often talk about pre-internet, pre-social media and how the only form of communication was that domestic rabbits magazine that came in the mailbox and they waited, you know, with, you know, the edge of their seats for that, for that domestic rabbits. And we don't have to wait anymore. It's right there on the app. It comes long before USPS even starts to mail up those, those issues. And uh, speaking of our, our Asian and Southeast Asian uh, breeders, both in rabbits and cavies, uh, this is a great time to join the ARBA because you can get that domestic rabbits and not have to wait, not, three weeks but like three months because that's how long it would take in those days to reach those mailboxes in asia you can get it right now so there's no better time to be an ARB member uh, wherever you are in the world and to hear all about the latest happenings uh, in moments and minutes and uh, this is a reminder everyone that uh, the rabbitry on facebook will continue to serve as our hub for the best in show podcast links to all of our previous episodes uh that's one through 40 and we are at 41 now are still there archived forever with links and photos to our amazing guests. We have lots more coming for you this fall and beyond. And uh, so if you haven't already, find The Rabbit Tree on Facebook and like it and please share it with your friends on Facebook and social media, wherever you reach out to people. Tell us about the, tell them about the Best in Show podcast. It, uh, it's a great thing we've got going and we want more and more people to listen. And whichever way you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Google or Audible, Best in Show podcast. It's on it, so find us on it, and please like and comment. Those likes and comments mean the world to us, and they also help us to gain some relevance. So give us those five star ratings. And Brandy, I think you've got um, a listener comments to read for us this episode, don't you?
0: I do. This one is from Stillwater's Rabbitry, and their comment is: Subscribe to the Best in Show podcast, and it's like pulling up a chair to a judge's table, helping a breeder in their barn treatment of illnesses in a vet's office, understanding breeding techniques from a firsthand experience, and getting your passion for rabbits re-energized with countless breeders' success stories. Thank you, Bryony and Alan.
1: And thank you.
0: Yes, um, I think that that is the best praise, I think, at least that we can get for this podcast, at least me, um, is just to know that it's given you something useful and tangible and helpful. You know, entertainment is awesome, but a way to improve in your hobby, something to learn. Or even just, like they said, re-energizing that passion for the hobby. That's, that is is high praise.
1: It is at the core, at the reason why you and I started this over a year and a half ago. So we hope to keep it going.
0: That we do. Hey, Alan, what do you call that gross buildup that happens in the rabbit's favorite corner of the cage?
1: Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, Bryony. Those rabbits are creatures of habit, and that favorite corner can get really disgusting
0: with dutch it's normally bucks and i call that buck sludge and once they find that corner and start at it it just starts to build up layers upon layers of calcification they start molting it sticks into it and pretty soon you've got a solid mat of yuck
1: uh, you mentioned at this time of year especially when they are beginning to molt into their convention coats it gets really bad and it's also the number one cause for rusting and failure of cage floors trying to get that corner clean is the worst part of chores. I call it, uh, well, let's say your term, Buck Sludge, it's uh, it's podcast friendly. What I call it is not. <laughs> and I have to perform like a gymnast to get to the back of the cages on the bottom stacks to get to that nasty Buck Corner.
0: Well, I think I may have found a solution for that.
1: Oh, oh, Bryony, um you always have the best savvy solutions. Do tell.
0: I just received this cool contraption from KW Cages called the Magic Corner Cleaner. <laughs> It is designed to fit perfectly in the corner with special blades that fit in between the wires and make quick work of removing all of that built-up debris and nastiness. I found that it works like magic.
1: Well, Bryony, I've got to grab one of those Magic Corner Cleaners for myself. It's time to clean up those cages to better condition my convention entry especially. And just a reminder to our podcast listeners that if you're interested in this incredible Magic Corner Cleaner or any of the other innovative products at KW Cages... Use the promo code TheRabbitry to receive a $10 off coupon on orders over $75 at kwcages.com. And if you're attending the 2022 ARBA convention in Reno, which everyone should, you can pick up your orders from the KW Cages booth with your pre-order through their online store at kwcages.com.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about that kind of entrance section and what is there in that lobby area?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So when you first come in, um to the right, there's uh, what I call kind of the John Fair tribute. I would say he would be in probably the top two or three of our founders. Um, incredible guy that he and Lou Griffin uh, were buddies and Ed Stahl. All three of them were buddies and they all went back from the beginning and they all survived till from the, let's see, I guess it would have been the late 50s, I think when Lou Griffin died and I think Ed Stahl made it to the early 80s, maybe late 70s. But that's a long time when you're saying they all started in 1912, 1916. That's a long time that they were buddies together. But uh, but John Fair, um, who's a very likable guy, when you – I mean, I never met these guys. I don't know them. But when you read enough and you see enough, um, and, you know, there's other comments that people have made, um, you know, on, on their passing. There were huge tributes. Um, in the domestic rabbits or in small stock magazine and the respect that these people earned. So um, there's a an old display case that uh, came from our first antique find um, there. I built a, a base for it um, just out of pine wood so we could get it up. Um, Ellie spent probably a full day washing one. There's one glass panel that had like white, um, I guess you'd call it, um, uh, like salts or whatever when, when it gets, um, you know, over time the the glass gets uh, like a buildup on it. So she kept uh, washing it with vinegar and she finally got it clear. So it was beautiful. Has his memorial trophy and a whole bunch of John fair artifacts. He, he had a, a tattoo pen that he came up with um, various publications. And then just to the right of his uh, sort of tribute display case, we built a reproduction of, um, from his original 1920s blueprints. So in, in 1920, he drew a set of plans with, I mean, every detail of the, uh, the, the lumber size, where to cut, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he sold those. I mean, some of these guys, Fair and Stahl were self promoters to a certain degree. Um, that's probably sounds a little unkindly. because they weren't so much self promoters. They were just promoters. And so they, um, and it was also their livelihood. Um, they, I think they, they both had day jobs, but they really wanted to promote rabbits. And heck, if they could make a buck at it, they did the same thing. So they, um, you know, aside from selling breeding stock, they had pedigree books and, um, and hutch plans. So anyways, we made that, um, the John Fair hutch, and, um, which is really cool because his plan said, you know, use six, one by sixes and you put them together and it'll make a 36 inch wide sidewall. The problem is that the lumber today is five and a half inches. You know, back then it was six inches. So we had to adjust the plan to add another board in there. So, you know, but it was extremely fun to be able to bring that to life. And so that sits there. So people can kind of see this is, this was the state of the art hutch. It had a kind of a sloping floor, perfect for solid breeds. And then it had a little um, slatted floor area that you, the idea was that you, uh, it was like a bathroom, so if they could habitually urinate there, great. Otherwise, you would, the, all the urine that went below the shavings or whatever your, your bedding was would run down the inclined floor into the slat area and into a pull out pan. So in 1920, there was a pull out pan under your cage. You had to clean a pan. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a nice roomy hutch. So, anyways, you have that to kind of like a living history in a way of. of what hutches were like. And I mean, that hutch was expensive to make. And like, I, you know, kind of going back to like everybody's first hutch. Um, and can you imagine if somebody wanted 20 holes, 30 holes, and uh, that hutch, you know, the cost of lumber, I guess is what I'm, I'm uh, saying in 2022, it would be a ridiculous idea to think that you're going to, you know, build a dozen holes uh, for, your, for your rabbit hobby that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, what an investment, you know, we think about, oh, you go through a litter and you've got more than you want. Yeah. You just order another stacker and go pick it up, but um, not so at that time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, there is uh there, and to the left, there's a big display case like from an original general store. It's about 20 feet long and in uh, all glass shelves. And so that has all of the, um, a lot of the, the really treasured things like it, it has the, John Fair's membership card and uh, uh, G- Jimmy Blythe's and uh, pedigrees from Lou Griffin and others. Not I, I'm focusing on those guys. Those are some some definite pioneer heroes. But um, you know, there's fibber memorabilia, Orrin memorabilia. But to be able to look at some of these things and see that these uh, went, you know, belong to these greats, and and now they're on a display that you can look at. You don't have to go look through a file cabinet or or, you know, ask what is this stuff. It's, it's uh, so it's it's, uh, really neat to go through there. And, you know, if anybody's able to get there, you have to spend, it's not like you walk through it in 30 minutes or even 45 minutes. You really need a few hours to, to go through. If you, if you just kind of want to take it all in.
0: Oh yeah. We went there for the grand opening and it was, you know, you kind of get a taste of what's on the surface there. Um, You know, what is there and what you want to spend time with the next time you come back.
2: Yes. Yeah. And that, that, when we went to the um, Henry Ford last year and I'd never been there and it was really exciting because it's a, it's one of the biggest, kind of like a Smithsonian, but a little bit different um, there in, in Dearborn, Michigan. And you need two days, probably need three days to go through and see it all. And, um, and, you know, the thing is that people have different interests and like, whenever I go to some kind of a museum exhibit, they'll always start with like kind of the, prehistoric stuff, the ice age and and and, that. and oh, that's kind of boring to me so i i tend to skip that somebody else might like that but when i get into like the uh 1890s early 1900s i love all that stuff it's kind of the industrial age i, I like all that and and then but you know for the future we'll have we'll be able to expand more in the 1950s 1960s and, you know there's some stuff there but but sort of chronologically um, what we were able to do in in you know the the three or four months we had started with, you know, the oldest going from, you know, there's the the, um, the wall, the Bobby Whitman gallery, which are all of the original um, engravings. That's where in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and really up into the early 1900s to make any type of a graphic image, they didn't have halftone photos they could print. It was all um, an engraver with his sharp object engraving into first they did it in copper and metals and, and uh, newspapers in the 1890s for economy. They would have wood engravers and see it is a piece of hardwood and they would, and you see all these little lines that were really good for graphic images they would reproduce. So we have a really great collection of, of and they're all domesticated rabbits, not wild rabbits. And there's, you know, there's a lot of other aspects of rabbits, but our focus are domesticated rabbits, the domestic rabbit, in mostly in the United States.
0: So, tell us about how the library space is, you know, arranged in this facility.
2: Yeah, the, well, the original general store um, it, on the back of it was an added on room that was built when they, well, the story on the store is that it, it was about two blocks away and it got moved to its location to save it because they were going to do some development or something. So um, the owner that uh, Eric bought it from was really uh, had a lot of good foresight to save it. He liked the store because it, it was uh, from when his in his childhood. And that's why he saved it. And then he built on the back of it, I guess, just to get more retail space because his wife had a sort of a craft and quilt store. But he built the most spectacular room. Um, it's, it is now officially called the, the Library as far as the whole headquarters go. This room is the, quote, library, end quote. But we were calling it the beam room because he took these large, reclaimed, hand-hewn beams, like maybe 12 inches by 12 inches. I mean, these are major beams. And there's one going down through the center and some beams that hold it up. And and it, so it's kind of like a, a really impressive room. And so around the perimeter of that are all of the bookshelves. And uh, Ellie and her crew and Johnny uh, Hossner came and helped. And... She had, I think, some 4-H uh, helpers um, that came out there, and they got all the books organized um, in chrono order. That is not a small task because there's there are literally thousands of books, and in the move, they didn't move organized where you know you just put them right back. You have to go in and figure out what is what, and so on. And so it's a really impressive room where you you really see the the breadth of all the volumes of stuff that you could research and see. And and honestly, you could pick up. Uh, one of the like a bound volume of small stock from 1947. So that's probably two inches on the shelf. You pick up this bound thing. and you could spend the next three hours looking at it. I mean, and that's just two inches of the whole collection. and it goes on and on. so that so the back library room is a, to me, a, a really special place. Ellie got special donations to have a custom-made library table that's about maybe five or six foot square and it um it sort of hugs over this um, a vertical beam and so the table is custom built to to actually sandwich around the beam and then we had some uh, reading lights installed um on it and um and there's a place um she even saw to have like you can plug in your usb port for your computer or phone or whatever so you can sit there and and get lost um reading
0: It is beautiful. And it just, you know, dovetails with the style of the building so well. Um, so the library was originally dedicated to the Hall of Fame members. And can you tell us what has been done to honor the Hall of Fame members in the new headquarters?
2: Yeah. So, well, um, the original uh, dedicatees of the library were Orrin Reynolds and Doc Reed. And um, so they kind of have a little special place there. And that, you know, you have to go back to the to the nineties and those um, and not that they are any less now regarded, but they were, um, they were, you know, beloved individuals. But as far as the hall of fame goes, yes, the hall of fame, it's like the, it's kind of like there's four things in um, on canoe ripple road in Knox. It's the ARBA headquarters. So all the business of the ARBA is done. I've talked about the, um, the library room. Um, There's a museum exhibit room that has the kind of visual displays and then there's a hall of fame and so each of these has its own sign there's like uh, these aluminum cut letters that we put on the wall to to designate these areas but the the, i would say the hall of fame is probably the most hallowed area there because we we did it on um, this kind of like a a mini mezzanine landing if you want to call it that where you come up some stairs you're kind of isolated from everything else and um and then uh we took in the past, there were photos of the Hall of Fame members, and there was a little brass plaque in the photo uh, that had their name on it. And so my, um, I don't know, to my thinking, it's like, I wanted more, I, like because, uh, oh, there's like there's Wallace Blair. And i like, well, who's Wallace Blair? And it has his name, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And so we really don't have anywhere in our recorded history, you know, official history in yearbooks or member handbooks or anything, who these people are and what they did. So this is the first time that, we got you know with this um, sort of grand opening as the impetus, we could we could have plaques made that were maybe a little more um, oh, I don't know stately I don't know what the right word is but something to, to you know have an honor befitting these guys and, and gals uh, and um, but also a little mini bio. So that's uh, how it evolved, and so um, we're going to like maybe have them engraved on. Um, you really can't get brass stuff now. It's all like kind of fake brass, like the colored aluminum. And it they just looked kind of cheesy. So anyways, that, um, I saw these granite plaques where you take a piece of, um, jet black granite and it has a super polished smooth surface. And then they laser cut it. And so you get good contrast. So wherever you laser cut it, it's like white against the black. So, um, then we had everybody's portraits done as, um, like pen and ink drawings, um, which, I don't know, it kind of makes it uh, more um, uh, forever, you know, like, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, what am I trying to say, Bryony? It's like, it's uh, it's like a, uh, like it stands the test of time. Modern yet timeless. Timeless. That's what, that was the board that we needed. So they're kind of timeless. So we got everybody's um, like pen and ink drawings. And then um, and then we had to research, and so the basic format was, well, we'd like to know um, if they're, um, like, their birth date and their, their, you know, when they pass away, if they, you know, if there are some that are still alive, so we want to be careful of that. But, um, you know, when did these people live? Um, kind of what part of the country did they hail from? Um, and what we found in that, a lot of people died in a different city, like maybe that they had retired in, but so part of that was like, well, where were they from? You know, uh, Ed Stahl, um, was from Holmes Park, Missouri. And I think that he passed away in a, you know, in a, in a rest home in a different state. So that, so we wanted to put the, the city that they hailed from, um, you know, that's one of, I call it kind of an ARBA standard. If you're going to put anybody's name in print anywhere, in the DR, or any place. And I tried this like with show program stuff is we always put their state abbreviation. Cause you know, we're a, uh, you know, association across a lot of states and provinces, et cetera, and countries now. But um, so we wanted that. And then a little bio, like, why are they in the Arabian Hall of Fame? And there's a lot to be learned there. The first 10 were, well, yeah, the first 10, no, I'm sorry, the first 12 that were put in the Hall of Fame um, were not, they were not called, were putting in the Hall of Fame when they were presented a plaque. And uh, so there's, there were two things. Uh, Harry Harrelin was our first Hall of Fame member, but what he got in 1952 or 53 was a plaque at an Bay convention presented by the board. And it wasn't just a plaque. It was a bronze casting, and it had um, a, a relief casting of his, of his face, of his portrait. So it's almost like a sculpture of him in this plaque and um, had every arba directors uh, and board members name presenting it to him and why did they give it to him well they were very thankful because he'd done a ton of service but specifically the service they were thanking him for was he was on the commercial committee and he would led uh, a, um, a campaign to get the usda to ban australian rabbit meat imports so um they, they didn't like uh, the you know imported rabbits. This was in the nineteen late for I guess early fifties. Yeah, it was in the early fifties. And um, so Australia, through all of its trials and tribulations of rabbits, they came up with well, we can catch all of these rabbits and then can them and ship them to all the export markets. You know, the rabbits that were just feral in their country. And so the the thought at the time was well, these are not USDA inspected. The manner and method that they um, got them out of the rabbit warrens was was questionable if they used strychnine or other sort of chemicals to rouse them. And so anyways, Harry Harolin was able to get USDA to ban it. And so in the kind of commercially centric ARBA of that time, um, that was a big deal. And he did spend a lot of time and he was also very well regarded. He had like a perfect model rabbitry and a huge commercial success with uh, laboratory rabbits and laboratory rats and mice. He's one of the founding members of the, the whatever the trade association is for um for setting the standards for laboratory animals he's he's one of their founders in there and so there's a lot of history on him and so anyways there's a story we had to figure out and go back and and read it and and so anyways i i took lots of pictures and um i give a lot of credit to holly because she spent a lot of time doing bio stuff for me and we got a lot of stuff from newspapers.com find a ton of stuff on newspapers.com where i would have never paid for that subscription before, like why pay for it when you can just Google search it? Well, you can't Google search uh, newspaper, you know, Microfish articles. Those are a great history source. And I, you know, I really wanted everything to be accurate that to me, that was super important. And so anyways, Harry Harlan got the thank you. I think that they saw we've got a problem because we've got Ed Stahl and John Fair, who have been around a lot longer than Harry Harlan or equally long. Harry Harlan, I think went back to the teens. Um, and so anyways, they got some, they were called them the faithful few, or they were faithful service, if I'm more accurate. All of, they were all cast bronze plaques. Today, that plaque would cost a couple of thousand, I'm sure. Um, and they got cast bronze plaques and said they were, and it said, for your faithful service. And then that went up until about 1950, about 1959. And then a plaque was made that was called the ARBA pioneers and this was just a, a wood plaque with a bunch of brass plates It had 12 plates and each plate had the name of the first 12 people to get those uh faithful service plaques and then somebody decided it'd be a good idea uh to call them the pioneers and they called it the um uh hall of fame of arba pioneers and so that's kind of the very first utterance as far as i could find and i did a lot of looking to figure out where did the Hall of Fame start, because the problem was the Hall of Fame stopped, and nothing happened. So it seemed until the nineteen eighties, when they put in um, Oren and um, Ed Pyfer. Um, and but part of the research is we found three other people that got the bronze faithful service plaques, and so they are being um, inducted, um, sort of um, de facto. Um, as Hall of Fame members, because they were, and that would be um, Ellis Murray, Dr. Um, Andrews, not to be confused with T. Andrews, who's I think still alive today, but Dr. Andrews was an old treasurer, and Cyril Lowett, all three of them, all three of those that got the faithful service plaques in roughly 1960 to 1964, the exact same plaque that Ed Stahl got, the exact same plaque that John Fair got, the exact same plaque that... Orin Reynolds got after the fact all the same wording. Um, uh, those three got it, and we've got the photo evidence in the in the stock mag or the small stock magazines that they were presented. It's just that people weren't accustomed to calling it Hall of Fame back then.
0: Which is interesting how that has evolved. Um, and this is saying a lot, but. To me, that was my favorite part of the whole experience was the way that that was done and the way that it not just has pictures of our Hall of Fame members, but tells stories. Um, I know for me, it was really cool to see that people years and years from now will know a little bit about the people that I grew up looking up to. And, you know, they will be more than just a photo on the wall of some old person that nobody knows anymore. Yes,
2: yes, that I mean that really uh I think you said it very well, that encapsulates what really the whole purpose for whether you, will, you know, whether it's museum, library, hall of fame aspect, but the whole um being able to tell the history. I mean, first of all, history is probably the number one asset of the ARBA. I mean, there's real estate and there's bank accounts and there's those things, but you could not purchase the history and you cannot put a, a dollar figure on it. But to be able to now, uh, me feeling, you know, I feel a little bit uh, like I'm starting to get crispy around the edges. You know, I've been doing this for 50 years or so, and 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 I've seen, you know, there's there's you know, we've got Glenn, a uh, absolutely uh, uh, gem of a of a treasure, and and there are other survivors from his era, but there's not a lot. And then when I look back, and and I'm sure you do when you look back when you're first in rabbits. Gosh, there's a whole lot of them that aren't with us anymore, and then I and I go back, you know, when I was a little kid, and I remember these guys, and I mean, they're that whole era is gone. So it's kind of like that that era that raised raps in thirties and forties is gone, and the ones from the forties, fifties, sixties are going, and you know, and so those stories, all the things attached to them, the um, you know, the, and the Hall of Fame, uh, these folks that are in there. I mean, one of John Fair's thing is when when they When he did the presentations of these plaques and sort of his whole faithful few mentality is that honor them when they're alive because uh we should all be able to enjoy that and they should be able to enjoy the acknowledgement of their you know their their labors and and you know so that's kind of the the baseball hall of fame has posthumous uh hall of fame members and and i'm mentioning baseball hall of fame because when i was trying to design like what should the plaque look like and how should we do it? I looked at a lot of Hall of Fames and and definitely the Baseball Hall of Fame above all is, you know, Cooperstown. And I know it's baseball, it's not rabbits, but it doesn't matter. It's a it's an interest, uh, you know, an intense interest that people have and honoring the people that were in that. And it's not just players, it was writers and journalists and everything else associated with it. But the, the very design, the graphical design of the plaque is based on Cooperstown. The story that each plaque tells um, I kind of borrowed from Cooperstown because what they do is when someone's nominated and they vote and they, they get sports writers that do it, is then they nominate or somehow select a sports writer or a team of them. And so they write the descriptions. And so in that way, a sports writer is not going to be all drab and like just, you know, factual and, you know, textbook boring. They're going to put a little flair and put a little, you know, a little bit of uh, love into who this person was and what they did and you know, why, uh, why we find them to be interesting today. And so uh, the, I, that part I, I, I really uh, like, you know, that for people to be able to see. And, you know, not, before it was very nice because we had them organized, we had their photos. But now you can you can get a little bit more. And I think over time, those stories might be able to disseminate into member handbooks or other places where people can get it.
0: Yeah, I mean they were beautifully well done. Connell's made me cry, so well done.
2: Ah, <laughs> that's touching. That's right. Yeah, no, Con- and you know why? Reading those and doing it, it, particularly if they're people that that uh, you know that you that you know, and I I knew quite a few of them, um, but and even the ones I didn't know, because I say this about Lou Griffin, like Lou Griffin, I feel like we're buddies, and and he died in 1959, and and even though I'm getting crispy, I'm not. I wasn't born, but. Uh, <laughs> One of the one of the best Lou Griffin stories was um, Harold May, who was uh, the famous Flemish giant breeder. I don't know if you ever got to see him or meet him. Maybe Bryony, I don't know, but he was. I knew a,
0: of him. A,
2: okay, I mean, if you if you like saw he and Red Dent were the Flemish giant um, main promoters. Uh, really, in as far as I can remember, in the eighties, nineties, and I can't remember when they passed, but probably into the early two thousands, but always in the Flemish booth, always, but Harold May in our archives, we have his writings and he has a binder where I think for the Flemish giant newsletter, he would write um, monthly or bimonthly, whatever, whatever, whenever they came out articles on the history of the Flemish giant club. And it's, it's not just like a pretty simple fact based history. It's got story after story after story. And uh, one of his stories was that when he went to the 1983 convention, In Colorado Springs, um, which was my second convention. So I kind of have a little bit of a memory of the lay of the land there, but it was in, it was kind of in downtown Colorado Springs and it was in a hotel. And uh, so everybody stayed in a pretty nice hotel upstairs. And then you got on the elevator and went to the parking garage down two and three levels down in the parking garage. And that was the convention. And the conventions back then were probably only four or 5,000 rabbits. And the smell was not very good, but all the rabbits were there, but he was telling a story, um, I guess he didn't drive, Harold May, and I don't know if he was disabled, I'm sure somebody knows that, but um, uh, maybe he just didn't drive, but he had somebody drive him, and so he had his driver, one of his goals was have his driver take him to Lou Griffin's house, and Lou Griffin lived in Colorado Springs, and um, since Harold May was a kid, he remembered his address it was on I can't remember Contessa Avenue or some something like. He remembered the the street name, so he, they didn't have time. He didn't get a chance to drive there, so it's time to go to the airport. So he told the guy driving him, "We have to go by his address." And so they got the address. Well, it turns out it was like two blocks from the convention because because you know the country back in the teens is the city now, and a lot of my a lot of my history where with the benefit of Google, you can look up these old addresses, and they're all in like the big metropolitan downtown centers where in the teens and 20s, they were in the country. So he drove by his house and he, and he said it was a cathartic experience. It was like a mecca for him because he looked up to Lou Griffin. He was you know in charge of the Flemish Club. And since he was a kid, he would send letters to this address. And it, it was just a plain, nondescript, uh, probably nineteen early 1900s home. But anyways, we have that that story in there. And it's like, I don't know, maybe people find that to be odd, but, but it meant so much to him because it was his childhood. You know, like Bob Bennett was my childhood. And and, you know, everybody has what they grew up with and uh, and it becomes profound uh, with the passage of time.
0: That it does. Um, so talking about tributes to some of those individuals, tell us about the executive director's office and all that's in there.
2: Well, yeah, so uh, it kind of started like one of the first proposals I had to Eric was give me an idea, like, here's what I think. Um the, the headquarters should be, it should be kind of museum-like and uh, we're kind of evolving to what, it's easy to roll off the tongue now that it's a museum because it, it genuinely is. It's got exhibits and it's got all the things that someone, you know, it's worth the price of admission if somebody wanted to go there, although I, I'm sure it'll always be free for members and their families. But um, but to make it museum-like, well, so one of the things I did is there's a um, kind of an iconic photo that you'd have to go back to the 1920s or 30s standards. It was actually the standard and guidebook back then. But um, one of our first um, truly legitimate secretaries was um, Arthur Wagant. And he was in Chicago. And um, when he got the reins of the headquarters office, it was really in disarray. There were lots of scandals and money missing. There was a There was a lawsuit and and so he came from the railroad as some sort of, um, as a minimum, some kind of an administrative uh, manager and maybe maybe even a higher executive, um, but he had really good executive skills. And so he took the association and flipped it around. But one of the things he did is he had um, a, a photo of what it was like on the inside of the ARBA headquarters office. And, you know, you have to get back into, this was 20... 728 i think is when the photo was taken 1927 1928 and if you're a member you are waiting for your guidebook to come or your bulletin that you might get once or twice a year and anything you got from the american was like exciting because you know you're and you're going to read it cover to cover and i hope that people do the same thing with their domestic rabbits today um you know we've got so many distractions with social media and other places but um how does this answer your question? Well, this iconic photo of the inside of his office, um, I told Eric, we ought to blow this up and to make it like a mural for the wall. And there's, there are actually two photos, one of his inner office of Arthur Wagan and then one of the outer office, which was his staff. There are about five ladies that worked for him, including um, Norma, her name will come to me, but she was our first ARBA officer, um, our first treasurer. Um, or Lady Treasure. There are treasurers before, but she was the first uh, Lady Treasure. So anyway, she's in that uh, photo. Really cool, and you have to see it because the office has all kinds of rabbit um, memorabilia, framed art on the walls. It has the Whipple, uh, or one one, um, print from the Whipple collection you can make out on the back wall of this 1926 office, and those Whipple photos would have come out in Fur and Feather magazine in probably the teens and 20s, so Arthur Wagen had it framed and on his wall. He has a taxidermied Flemish Giant, which is just kind of in, in a really good mandolin pose. It looks great, and it's just there. And you know, some people today might find it odd that it was—it's like the character that just uh, exudes from this photo. So, anyways, we made that the backdrop of his office, and then, um, and then, uh, you know, part of the vision was well, let's let's do a tribute to the locations of the Arabia headquarters. And let's do a tribute to some of the past secretaries. So that in itself was a was a nod to Arthur Wagen. Um, really, in, in the top, uh, you know, three or four, um, you know, progressive, really great secretaries. Um, uh, Eric personally chose Jimmy Blythe and Glenn Carr to feature. And it's not to take away from other secretaries, but those were, you know, his mentor ones. And so we did a. Um, a um, sort of a photo banner. And it's, so it's kind of historical showing some really neat vintage photos of Glenn and his best in show win. Um, But it's also a tribute to him because, you know, he needs a good tribute. He did did a lot for the association. And then there's one for James Blythe. That one did not come in time for our grand opening, but it's there now. So people have that to look forward to. Really great photos of James Blythe. And by the way, some of those things like the James Blythe one, that came about um, during the work week that I was back there. In the evenings, I would try and see if I could put something together for another display. And there were um, actually three displays that I did that week. That um, they just there wasn't enough time for them to get printed on the fabric and the frames made and all that. And um, they sh- they could have been there, but I think they all showed up like the Monday afterwards. So those were all things that um, I think if I go back this winter um, I'll make sure that they're up if Eric hasn't even already put them up. And that's something for people to look forward to, but, but in his office, it's kind of a tribute to the secretaries.
0: Well, I loved that. And um, some of us that got there a little bit earlier, had the privilege of being there when Glenn walked up and saw that. And I know that was very, very special to him.
2: Yes. Yes. I, I feel uh, very privileged. And I know I'll look back on that, uh, you know, Years later, that uh, that was, that, you know, it's like, oh man, the time to have that tribute is when someone is alive, and I know Glenn will be alive for a long time. I'm not suggesting anything different, but man, what a what a life accomplishment and what he's done for the Airba, and um, and a very humble man. I mean, Glenn Glenn is a you know, there's there's a lot of pressure in that position. I'm sure there's politics and there's you know there's there's a lot. Uh, you know that you know, and Eric has today, and every secretary before them, I'm sure. And uh, so, anyways, uh, Glenn is a is a really good uh, uh, mentor for us all. To have
0: yes. So those of us who did get there a little bit early and kind of got to wander around before the official start time, of the grand opening, got to go all but one room of the new headquarters. And can you tell us what was unveiled during the grand opening?
2: Ah, oh, okay. Yes, I guess I kind of alluded to it, but when you come in the front door, there are those three sort of divisions of the um, of the the museum or the headquarters. And so, um, other than the administrative offices, which are kind of toward the back, but there's the the library. We talked about that. There's the Hall of Fame, and then the last one are called the museum exhibits. So there's a sign above uh, this old uh, 1890s panel door. And uh, so we kind of left that for like a surprise factor. But when you go in there, um, it was the, the livery or sort of the feed store part of this 1890s building. It's the original structure. It's kind of an, an L-shaped plan, the floor plan. So this is uh, kind of the leg of the L and the room is about 30 feet square. So it's a pretty good size room, 10 foot high ceilings, and it's got all original, um, the, the weathered, no, they call it fumed. Um, shiplap siding. So it's a, a a way of saying it's like really darkened lumber and it, and it, so it's got this really neat, oh, it's got the old, uh, wood floors that have been refinished, but they're, they're, um, they, they're like, you know, like the craters in an old man's face or the line, deep lines, like showing their age and telling a story that the, so the, the floors are super cool. Um, where there's like an old hole in the floor, it's got like a license plate that someone's nailed down over it. So it's got that kind of country vibe so fitting for the for the arba and a lot of our rural folks that raise rabbits and have that that vibe but anyway so so that's the blank slate for this room and uh so when you go to the right we have what we call the whitman gallery where we where you start out chronologically um with these old wood prints of rabbits that by today's standards they look pretty primitive they're not some of them look pretty bad they're kind of cull looking but um but that's what that was in the eye of the artist at the time and these were Domesticated rabbits. Uh, you can find tons of things on rabbits that people, Autobahn, that people are viewing in the wild, but a lot of these are um, domestic rabbits. And some of them were done for scientific books. But um, anyways, you get past that. That's kind of the oldest stuff. And then we have um, what are, um, I call them panels, but they're, they're visual displays. So they're, they vary from seven foot high up to 10 foot high and they're backlit fabric displays. Um, it's kind of like the latest thing you might see in a museum. If you go through airports, you'll see them as advertising displays on the walls where it's a backlit display. And if you go up and touch it, you realize it's it's actually a fabric material, um, but it, it has um, this luminosity to it that really makes it pop out and stand. You can see it. It's great for these old sepia print photos that you can see in clearer or to, to a good extent. But anyways, you walk around and um, it's kind of taking you chronologically from the earliest rabbits. I call it kind of the poultry show era, the 1890s. Um, There weren't rabbit shows. There weren't rabbit clubs. If you were going to show rabbits, probably at a county or a state fair, or maybe at the local poultry exhibit, exhibit, uh, the poultry clubs loved it because uh, these crazy rabbit people will come in and pay them something. I don't know what they paid them, but they gave them something to share the rent. And so... um, they and then they would it'd be like a little adjunct to the poultry show kind of a novelty and like one of our very first exhibits kind of a surprise for people um that we're able to unearth during this massive kind of uh research was one of the very first rabbit shows advertised was in um downtown manhattan at a place called the um the uh oh why am i going blank the um Who's born every minute? Hang on. Oh, Barnum. Sorry. The Barnum Museum. So Barnum, everybody's probably heard of P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum later would um, get into the circus business. You know, there's one born every minute. But what he had at that time was a pretty um, impressive building, a facade in downtown New York that was called Barnum's Museum. And it was kind of like a Ripley's Believe It or Not. Um, um, But it predated that because we're talking 1885. And it had um, all kinds of oddities that he would advertise and get people to come and pay admission. So one of those was a poultry show that featured rabbits. And so, um, you know, it was so novel then that he could charge a gate for people to come in and see these odd rabbits. And you have to realize that the domestic rabbit was not a common place. They weren't, you know, they didn't have, they weren't, you didn't go to the pet stores. You didn't it just, it was a novelty. So to be able to see what you only knew to be in the wild here, tame and, you know, eating a carrot out of your hand, et cetera, was, um, was cool. And so finding that was a, was a major find because it was like, wow, it's, it's not only is it rabbit history, but it's PT Bardem. It's like, man, this is like a cool factor all the way through.
0: Yeah. Cool factor all the way through definitely describes it. I mean, it's a really just beautiful professional, wonderful exhibit that, you know, showcases the history of rabbits and also kind of gets you pumped up to be part of the future of it too.
2: Yes. Yes. There's uh, definitely the, I think one of the, one of the things uh, like the, uh, you know, they they did speeches and, you know, you uh, know, it was a very nice uh, inauguration and opening, but I think that probably the biggest message of what was being revealed was that, um, it's kind of like this um, showcasing of the rabbit history and all these items that now that we kind of know what they are and they have a story behind them, there's a cool factor. Um, I think it'll be a bit of a mecca of people. It's worth the, the price of a family trip out there for a vacation or making it, you know, making it, uh, you know, in the, in the past, you probably, I wouldn't spend a lot of money unless you had, you know, if you had just a passing interest getting to you know getting to the headquarters because everything's in file cabinets and you know you can't you can't really bring the family and do that. I mean you could you could but it's not the same. But here you could go and I call it that I think I predict that it'll be kind of the Disneyland of rabbits that people could come and see. And that's not to um to make it like okay we're now a Disneyland, like you know, in a pejorative way like it's something. But it's but it's just everything that's the cool factor where Disney showcases really the best of Americana and, and the, you know, and, and just a lot of the things that at least Disney thought were really cool. The Henry Ford does that to a certain extent. And so this is our version of that for people to come to. But the point that I was going to trying to come back to here is that it's never going to be done. I mean, ever it'll never be done. So that, and that makes it exciting because there will always be something else that we can focus and feature. I talked about two inches of reading on the shelf, um, you can imagine how many stories there could be told and could be changed and changed up and, in just a matter of time and, um, you know, and resources and, and, you know, the history that's being made today, uh, you know, long after I'm gone, uh, you know, we're all gone, <laughs> whoever, people will look back in 50 years or 70 years and hopefully they'll be able to keep on, um, building on that.
0: I hope so too. So what is your favorite part of the new facility?
2: Oh, boy. Uh, Well, the facility altogether, gosh, I really like the trap door in Eric's office. So so there's, uh, it would be right below the Jimmy Blythe display, but his floor, about a three foot by four foot portion of the floor has like a, a ring latch that you can lift up on and the whole floor opens up and open to what's below, which is the museum exhibits and so I don't know. That's just like one cool little thing. There's also another trap door in the bottom of the museum exhibit that takes you under the whole building. That's really cool. But that's really a nerdy guy type of thing. But uh, overall of the things that were done there, I really like the, the I'm with you on the Hall of Fame area there. I think that's like a very hallowed ground kind of experience to be able to read that, um, you know, and it's not meant to be like a, like a graveside memorial but it, but it does give you like I, I went to the, um, the Arizona uh, Memorial, and so that, that obviously is a totally different thing, a totally different level, and so probably not the best analogy. Other than you come away with it like these are, these were important people in our past, and this is a fitting tribute because uh, we wouldn't be where we're at today if it wasn't on the, the backs of these folks, and uh, other than that. I like the barn, which is the warehouse out back, which I was able to use to, as a workshop to do things. Eric had that built, a beautiful building to, to warehouse all the books. But um, I don't know. My favorite thing of the whole museum is probably the um, the Margaret Guggenheim um, exhibit. And I won't be a spoiler, so I'll just leave it at that. I just love, I really I fell in love with Margaret Guggenheim, <laughs> but uh, not in an inappropriate way. She says, really uh an enigma we couldn't figure out this photo we had an original photo nobody knew who it was and it was rumored to be one of the guggenheims and books have been written and places have gotten. and they got the wrong guggenheim but we unearthed who she really was and so the story is there on margaret guggenheim
0: it is really cool and and a reason to go see all of it
2: yes the teaser
0: <laughs> so what are the next steps that you are planning kind of immediately for continued, not necessarily improvement, but just continued in advancement of our new headquarters?
2: Yeah. Well, the, um, the, the committee, I know Ellie and Johnny and, and Eric and I were talking about, and I don't know how thrilled ARBA staff would be, but it would be really cool to have an ARBA days uh, kind of national event. It could possibly be tied in with like a domestic rabbit week or something but um, uh, none of these plans are set in stone like a lot of the things I come up with I just come up with the idea and then maybe somebody maybe somebody thinks it's good or maybe think it's crazy but but the idea would be that same weekend um, seems to not step on too many things but that kind of uh, what was it the kind of the, the toward the end of June perfect weather in, in Pennsylvania you couldn't have a picture postcard day for what we had there um hopefully it wouldn't rain if we had it again but the idea is if we had some annual event that would be the um kind of the deadline to be able to have maybe a new exhibit a new feature or something else of an enhancement to um the the library and the museum and um you know it could be held in conjunction with maybe some other event but the idea is that um you know we all get together at the convention and that's really great but I think there's a certain number of people. I'm not saying that everybody could afford to make a trip out there, but there'd be a certain number of people that um, I think would find that within their schedules to be able to come and and participate.
0: I think that's a really cool idea. So we have kept you for a while tonight, but I do have one last question that we ask all our guests. Um, Tell us about your perfect rabbit show.
2: Oh my gosh, my perfect rabbit show. Well, I've been um, kind of in the business uh, or at least our California crew, Randy and myself and our, our California one of trying to envision that and then re-envisioning and reinventing it with each iteration of a convention. So, uh, so I'm kind of thinking, you know, uh, you know, there's a, there's a perfect local rabbit show and then there's a convention. So maybe that's not fair because that's a, that's like a rabbit show on steroids, but, each time, I think this will be our sixth one. There's always like the brainstorming: what can we do different, or raise a notch, or make it smoother, make it tighter. And but you know, I think just for any perfect rabbit show at any level, um, you know what what makes it perfect for most exhibitors is to just have it be super smooth and organized. And the problem with that is people don't understand. Uh, I'm sure they probably do because I'm sure enough people have pointed this out. I'm not the first one to point out that there's a lot of work that goes into it. But um, I don't know what I've got pet peeves, pet projects. I guess make it positive, not negative, that um, I think a show ought to have um, some kind of awards for this is for the newbies. You know, obviously the people that are, you know, they're if they're running sweepstakes or they've, you know, they've, they've, they've they're uh, accomplished in their rabbit showing. It's ridiculous. They don't need more things to dust off and all that. And I get all that, but, but to have awards, I think that was always very exciting for kids is that, you know, there'd be some kind of award, you know, maybe more than a ballpoint pen or something, you know? And then um, I don't know, that would be, I think that'd be perfect. I don't know. Is this, is this real or can this be imagined?
0: (laughs) Uh, I mean, it can be imagined.
2: It's like that kind of like uh the the endless summer movie where like you're seeking like the perfect wave and everything is like a perfect storm of perfectness but I don't know I guess I guess I would say that you know having having like at the level at like a convention level things that um that we did you know when we w have them at Del Mar or even what we did uh, last time at Reno uh to really try, and I don't know, I don't want to sound like uh, our shows are better than anyone else's, but but certainly if you're involved and you're doing it, you want it to be the best that you can do it, but to uh, really have it so people have a, a nice experience and have it be... Um, I don't know, I've always had this view of, like, well, what what would the public think if they came through here and looked at it? And so if everything can be set in an environment where it's, um, you know, I, I'm a big person on the... the the convention is an exhibit as much as it is a competition and uh, to me it's always very exciting to go and see all of the animals lined up by class and so you size up the class and you can look at them and uh and you know i even though i'm a, a cage guy i'm also a, a, a rabbit I, mean, I like to look at rabbits and I, and I like to see what that class looks like so to me ideally uh it's also about the the visual display, which shouldn't surprise people because I'm really all into all these visual graphics and visual things, but having everything look top notch that way, um, I think makes for a a really good show.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. And I know that the West Coast conventions have definitely pushed the bar um, as far as good displays and things like that. So Thank you again um, on behalf of everyone for the work that you've done. I know that, you know, those of who have seen the new headquarters are, you know, blown away and I can't wait for more people to go and share their pictures and experiences and really kind of organically spread the word.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. I can tell you that it was probably one of the funnest things that I've done. I mean, huge credit to Eric for finding this place and, and allowing it to turn into what it has become, um, and just you know having blind faith and and uh, and also tolerance for um, me being uh, prickly, I'm sure at times. So, uh, it. But I, overall, having been able to recuperate, um, it, it was a ton of fun and um, and very rewarding.
1: Bryony, that has to be one of my favorite interviews. You could hear the excitement and the the pride in Kevin's voice. Like I said last time, I've known him for over 20 years. He's been one of the most in- impacting people in my life, and uh, it was it was so Kevin. In fact, I think he was more Kevin in round two than he was in, in the first episode. And as he warmed up, and I think my favorite part went is when he uh, when you asked him that question. What are the three components you mentioned, Kevin? About uh, you know the new headquarters and, and the library and museum and he couldn't remember the third one and then later in the episode he's like the neon sign and he just glowed and of course had to talk about what neon sign meant it was, it was classic kevin so job well done and so happy to have him on here he's he was on my bucket list i'm gonna tell you again but i'm, I'm jealous that you got to do it um it a fabulous interview and, and thanks kevin for all of your hard work
0: Yes, this is, like you said, he's a bucket list guest and someone who has done so much for this hobby and industry, often behind the scenes and without people even knowing all that he has put in to make our shows and our hobby a success.
1: Yeah, you nailed it. And we've talked a lot about the new ARBA headquarters in Knox, Pennsylvania, but for listeners who may not be familiar with the history of the ARBA headquarters locations, I believe you have a 100-year recap for us.
0: That I do. So um, there's been some talk about, you know, we we belong to Bloomington, and Bloomington belongs to the ARBA, and, and it did for a long time. But actually, the headquarters did tend to move more often and for a long time moved with secretaries rather than secretaries moving to it. Um, back in the kind of the turn of the century, around 1919, 1920, there was actually kind of a schism in the association. And the old national, which is what it was called, Folded, and the new national was what was carried on to become our ARBA. They were headquartered um, originally in New York, then moved to Crawfordsville, Indiana. Then with the appointment of Arthur Wygant as secretary, it was moved to Chicago, Illinois, where he lived. Um, He was secretary for 20 years until Lou Griffin, who Kevin did mention in our first episode um, of the interview, was appointed secretary, and then the headquarters moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, where he lived. Um, He held the office until 1946, when James Blythe of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was elected secretary, and the headquarters then moved again to Pittsburgh. Um, It was in a facility that we didn't own at the beginning, and in 1948, we purchased our first national headquarters building for $15,500 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we remained there until January of 1973. And I will tell you, um, Deb Morrison created the cake that was cut at the grand opening. She did a beautiful job. That's something she's done for a long time is bake cakes and for weddings and things like that, and she put photos of a lot of these old headquarters, including that one in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania onto the cake, which was really neat. So cool. In 1972, Jimmy Blythe retired and Ed Pfeiffer of Bloomington, Illinois became secretary. And this was when we kind of took up residence in Bloomington because that was where Ed Pfeiffer lived. The building in Pittsburgh sold, um, said for a good profit at the time. Um, We moved to one rental facility and moved to a second rental facility and then purchased the headquarters um, at 1925 South Main in Bloomington, Illinois. Um, This was where Mr. Glenn Carr took over the office of secretary. He was actually the first one to move to the office. He lived in Ohio at the time. He talks about that um, in our episode that we did with him. That's definitely worth a re-listen if it's been a little while. Um, he moved in, in 1985 to that headquarters in 1996. Um, the ARBA purchased the building at Westport court in Bloomington that we most recently owned. And this was a much different facility. It was kind of office up front and warehouse in the back. And at the time it was a great move. It was, we got it for a great price. It was really helpful. We kept trailers full of ARBA equipment out there because there was a yard, There was some warehouse space in the back. I know they hosted some judges academies back there for a period of time. Um, But one of the issues that we did have that we've talked about a lot, actually, over the years in board meetings and kind of among convention hosts is that the equipment would be loaded back in the trailers after convention, and then it was stored there, which is not really good when you're talking about something that has had 20,000 rabbits urinating on it for a week so it got kind of humid in there the boards um, took a long time to dry out or didn't at all that contributed to rusting of some of the coops that were stored on them um, because of you know soaking up that moisture and from the humidity in the air and plus it's not good for trailers to sit um they need to move more than once a year um so once um mr bob price of indiana who's our equipment manager actually donated some land to the arba and now belongs to the association We built um, an equipment facility on the land that he gave to us. So now that equipment is able to be housed outside of trailers. It's able to be maintained through the year. It's able to dry out so we can take better care of our investment in the cages. Um, So we don't need it, that's warehouse space any longer because we have that equipment facility, in Indiana, which is a little bit more central, a little closer, um, especially for some of our West coast shows. It's still a drive, but it's a little more central than Pennsylvania. So this kind of allowed us to go back into a smaller office and make this one what it is now. It's a working office, but it's also a museum, a library, a headquarters, and really from top to bottom, literally um, a tourist attraction and a place where anybody, whether or not they already have a rabbit passion can come and learn about it and be interested in our hobby. I mean, it's, I hope that it will become, you know, along from, you know, other than our place, a kind of one of those n- little niche things, you know, you hear about these weird museums of odd things. And I hope that we'll get on lists somewhere because of our um, museum about the rabbit show hobby.
1: I, I think you were spot on with that. And it's uh, kevin described it as as mecca you know for us rabbit and kpp people it's it's our hub and to hear him talk about the accumulation of artifacts that happened from when he and glenn and others started the first library in bloomington to now you know back then you probably couldn't do it because there weren't the artifacts but the collection of artifacts were were housed in boxes and now it's all out there for everyone to enjoy, and as we like to say, geek out on. So if you are in that area, we recommend it. I'm speaking like I've been there. I've been there before what you saw. I cannot wait to go and see what what the AirBnB headquarters is today, because as you've described, Kevin's described, the domestic rabbits magazine, this issue has portrayed. It is amazing.
0: It is like an immersive experience in our history. And I think that like I said, it's something that people can enjoy and learn from and appreciate even if they don't know anything about the show rabbit industry or hobby at all. Um, for us, you know, a lot of the artifacts that were in the old library, they were wonderful. I mean, you would, as you said, go and geek out on that, but it was for people who knew a little bit about the hobby. Um, this display, you walk in and even if you know nothing about it, all you know is, wow people breed and show rabbits, (laughs) you know, that's all you need to know to appreciate these things and to really appreciate, you know, even and again, I don't want to spoil it, but the placement of our industry, um, in the nation's history as well. It's really fascinating. I just, I cannot wait for more people to see it, more people to take pictures and post it and talk about their experience and just kind of see it through so many different eyes. Yeah.
1: The layout tells a story and, uh, And as you said, you don't have to be a rabbit or KV guru to appreciate it. So I think it's going to be something great. I can't wait to go back myself. And I love Kevin's idea, by the way, about like these rabbit days or these, you know, maybe once a year where there's an event there, maybe in later June, like he recommended good weather in Pennsylvania where, you know, where rabbit people and KV people can get together on an educational, historical level and, and just be together, you know, sort of like convention, but without all the hubbub.
0: I was going to say we call convention the family reunion, but this will be the family reunion without the chaos. Yeah, exactly. it's, like <laughs> it's delightful, wonderful chaos, but it is chaos. I love it.
1: And just a reminder to all of our listeners that the rabbitry on Facebook will continue to serve as our hub each and every week for these best in show podcast episodes. So it, we are at episode 41. I can't believe it. We've got loads more coming. You can still listen to all those previous episodes by visiting the rabbit tree page and uh, loads of links to those previous episodes, regardless of which platform you listen to the Best in Show podcast, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or Audible, we are on it and you can find us and your five-star ratings and comments on those platforms mean the world to us. And if you don't want to drop a comment there, you can always email Bryony and me. We have a podcast email address. It's show at gmail.com. Shoot those comments to us. And just like we did earlier in this episode, we will be happy to read some of those comments as we continue on in this podcast journey. A giant thank you to KW Cages for sponsoring this podcast and previous podcasts. And don't forget to use that promo code, treat at kwcages.com for orders over $75. You can save $10 and conventions coming up, get those orders in. And if you're going to Reno, which you should, you can pick those orders up at the convention site itself. Um, and as we leave each episode, we've got a quote I've got one picked out um, and I, I I would sort of like to quote Kevin in this and how he finalized this episode by saying, you know the best part about this journey to the headquarters is that it's not over that there will continue to be history, and this museum, this headquarters is gonna be an evolution and <laughs> I can't remember how he described himself maybe uh, he was. Was he crusty or cracking? I don't know, but we're all going to get there someday. But that this headquarters is that place for us to be, a, a mem- a memorized or, or memorialized in, in a way, and, and not a dead person way, like he said. It's it's a way to celebrate us and and this incredible industry, hobby, whatever you want to call it, that we have been on. So the uh, the quote that I have chosen for this conclusion comes from Henry Ford, because Kevin quoted Henry Ford quite a few times when he reflected on some of the best museums that he had visited in the past and that inspired him when he helped to design the new Airbnb headquarters. And And it goes something like this from Henry Ford. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present. And the only history that is worth a tinker's damn is the history we make today. And again, that's Henry Ford.
0: That's wonderful.
1: All right, everyone, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening.
2: While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.